This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Um, okay, so we're going to get into God's Word. You'll know, you might have noticed that we have a very long reading from the book of Daniel this morning. So we're going to do that in two parts. So I'll invite Ben to come up. He'll read the first part until the end of Daniel's Thanksgiving prayer. And then we'll say our own prayer of Thanksgiving. And then we'll recommence after the Gospel reading. Thanks, Ben. The first reading is taken from Daniel 2. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed, to tell, to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was, and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces, and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honour. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realise that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods and they do not live among humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning the mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. 
He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Well, let's join in with Daniel and give thanks to God for the many good gifts that he gives us. Join in with this prayer of thanksgiving. Almighty God and merciful Father, we give you humble and heartfelt thanks for all your goodness and loving kindness to us and to all people. We bless you for our creation and preservation and all the blessings of this life, but above all for your immeasurable love in the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. And we pray, give us such a sense of all your mercies that our hearts may be truly thankful and that we may praise you not only with our lips but in our lives, serving you in holiness and righteousness all our days. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be honour and glory, now and forever. Amen. Tom's going to read our Gospel reading. Thanks, Tom. Good morning. The second reading today will come from Matthew 11, um, verses 25 to 28. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you are pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Hear the word of the Lord. The second part of the reading begins at verse 24. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mysteries he is asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. 
Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest of arms and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands, he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honour and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Hear the word of the Lord. With apologies, my name is uh, Michael Jensen, not Tim Escott, as listed. Not quite sure 
uh, why that was the case, but it sure gave Tim a fright this morning. <laughs> Let's pray and ask for God's help. Almighty God, we thank you for your holy word. May it be a lantern to, your feet, to our, our feet, a light to our paths, and strength to our lives. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Are we on the right side of history? Since about the year 2000, the language of the right or the wrong side of history has proliferated in politics and social commentary. It was one of President Barack Obama's favourite phrases. But even Ronald Reagan said something like it back in the 1980s. Jacinda Ardern has said it in New Zealand. Kevin Rudd said it. Hillary Clinton said it. Even Anthony Albanese has used this phrase. What does this phrase reveal, the idea that you are on the right or the wrong side of history? It reveals a sort of faith, doesn't it? A faith that history, with all its apparent uncertainty and complexity, is heading in a certain direction. Indeed, it's a hope that a history has a sort of moral core to it, that it will judge human beings, individuals and societies, and that justice and truth, or the particular speaker's version of it, will eventually triumph. Now, though the language of the right side of history is new, the idea is an old one and has taken a number of forms. One is called the Whig view of history, which sees history as the movement from an oppressive past to a liberated present. Now, that's Whig, W-H-I-G, a name for an uh, old political party in England. Uh, Karl Marx, for his part, saw history as a process of struggle between classes that would result in a communist utopia. Hitler saw himself as ushering in the thousand-year Reich of German dominance with Lebensraum for the German people. A movement called in our own time called techno-progressivism puts its faith in human ingenuity to bring us to a more just and equitable society. The more technology we build, the more equitable we will be, this movement says. And we can, we, we can have faith in that vision of progress. But there are two massive problems with these statements about history. One is, how can anyone be so confident that they know where history is going? How can anyone really know? Why should we have faith in the sense of destiny that these great politicians and intellectuals and business leaders seem to have. How can anyone possibly foresee all the economic and technological and political and cultural factors and then add them all together and then take nature itself into account with things like the changes in the climate or the appearance of, oh, well, I don't know, a pandemic out of the blue? Does not history teach us at least this, to expect the un? expected to foresee the unforeseeable. That's the first problem with it. The second problem is that all of these views of history propose that one day there'll be an end point of judgment from which we'll be able to look back. If history is progressing, then one day it must arrive. If it has a purpose, a progression, then it must be progressing to some point it must fulfill that purpose. But when will that be? And how will we know? And who will decide? History as we know it doesn't sit still. And the point is that actually history does not reveal its own meaning. 
whatever the pundits and the politicians might say, however grand the rhetoric, the sentiment they are expressing, we cannot fathom it unless, and it's a big unless, it is revealed to us, which takes us back to Babylon in around the 590s BC and into the bedroom of the great king, Nebuchadnezzar, mighty general and builder of his city, victor of the Battle of Carchemish in 605 BC, ruler of his nation and many other nations besides, master of the known world. But we find Nebuchadnezzar is a troubled and disturbed man. Why? Because he's had a nightmare, a vivid dream, a vision, in fact, that's really rocked him to the core. These were not sweet dreams. He was disturbed and afraid to go to sleep. Such was the disturbance of this dream. And so he summoned his whole crew of advisors. And this we know about the Babylonians, that they did have an entire faculty of astrologers and magicians and enchanters and sorcerers. They really loved this stuff. They were quite advanced in these practices, especially astrology. And it's not surprising that there was then this complete department of consultants and experts ready at hand to tell the king the future. And of course, the astrologers come in with all the deference that you might show towards a moody king and ask the natural question. Tell us the dream, O king, O wonderful king, may you reign forever. Tell us the dream and we'll interpret it. But here's the genius of the king. He knows that clever astrologers can make up anything given a bit of raw material. He knows that they're very good at just weaving their own spell, as it were. They're past masters at this kind of thing. But he won't have it. How does he know that their interpretation is the right one? How does he know that they have any special insight? If they're really as powerful as they say, they'll be able to tell him the dream and its meaning. Now, I, I really like Nebuchadnezzar's scepticism here towards the whole astrology industry. You do wonder what's led him to this. Experience, perhaps. He's noticed that really these people tend to speak in such ambiguities that you never know what they're really saying. That he's now sceptical that you could tell the future just by cutting open an animal and examining its guts or by watching birds flowing past or looking at the movements of the sky, of the stars. He's right. And he's threatening to expose an entire industry of stargazing and sorcery for the fake that it is. We could use a bit of scepticism in our own day. But add to this a bit of tyrannical paranoia worthy of a Stalin. Because he says, look, I've had a nightmare and now I'd like to welcome you to my nightmare. You can join me in it. For if you can't tell me my dream, I'll have you all executed. Not just sacked. Executed. Extinguish the lot of you. And at this point, we might have some sympathy for the astrologers. I mean, how can they actually do such a thing? How can they tell the king his dream? And in verse 11, they say it, don't they? What do they say there? What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal his dream, the dream to the king, except the gods. And they do not live amongst humans. You see, between us and heaven, there is an unbridgeable chasm. We cannot know what the gods are thinking, say the astrologers. We cannot know it. All we have is 
our human wisdom and knowledge, and I've got to say, they're being caught in his trap, admitting that their knowledge is invented, that really they uh, have no more insight than I do into the racing uh, tips for uh, Randwick next Saturday. And so the decree, I don't have any, by the way. And so the decree goes out, execute all the wise men in Babylon. Think of the savings to the taxpayer, executing all those wise men. And this includes the hero of our story, the centre of the book of Daniel, the young Jewish man that we met in chapter 1, Daniel, and his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariel. And at this point, with his executioner coming to find him, the chief of police coming to execute him, Daniel steps forward with, as the Bible says here, wisdom and tact, and he courageously asks the king for time to interpret the dream. So what does Daniel propose to do? Where will he turn to try and find the secret knowledge of the king's dream? The knowledge that, according to the astrologers, can only be found in heaven itself, cannot be found from this side. No one on the face of the earth, no human being can ascertain. We see the answer in verse 18. He and his friends pray to the God of heaven. And during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Now, prayer receives a bad rap these days. When people, especially politicians, say, I'm sending my thoughts and prayers, we hear them as sending nothing more than good vibes our way. We feel frustrated that they're not actually acting, that we can't do anything with prayers, that prayers will not actually result in, any, in anything, in any change. We don't want prayer. We want action. We think prayer is ineffectual. But Daniel knows better. He could not have discovered this truth himself. His only resort is to prayer. But it is exactly the right thing to do. Because, as he says in verse 20, wisdom and power are his. Only God knows the deep secrets of history. And God knows the changes of the times and the seasons. God knows the coming and going of kings, not just because he observes them from a distance, but because he is in power over them. He is in control of them. They, he, raise, he is the one who raises up kings and deposes others. And this is then what Daniel tells the king. I haven't worked this out for myself. This is verse 27. No wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he is, about, he is asked about. What you're asking is indeed humanly impossible. You can only find this information from one source. And this is from God. But, says Daniel, there is, verse 28, a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Do you seek what can only be known from the revelation of God himself? From human sources? Do you seek to know the meaning of history, the meaning of your life? Perhaps from looking around you, from looking inside of you, from education, from your other learning? All of those things have their place indeed. There is a human wisdom, but only God 
can reveal to you the meaning of the times in which you live. Only God can reveal to you the secret of all things. We need to notice here how humble Daniel is in his approach to Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't brandish his knowledge. What he has, he says, I can only have been, I can only have been taught by God himself. And that's the point he insists upon before he launches into the dream. And that's what he does. What has Nebuchadnezzar seen? He's seen an enormous dazzling statue. Now these sorts of statues would have been familiar from the ancient eastern world. My wife is actually at the moment in Egypt. She's been at Luxor and she was showing me photographs of some of the extraordinary 12 meter high statues that still exist. And I was looking at them and while I was preparing this passage and thinking, yes, Nebuchadnezzar would have, that's the kind of statue that he would have seen in his dream. These imposing figures dominating the skyline. The head of this statue was, however, not made of stone, but made of pure gold. The chest, were made, were, were, chest and arms were made of silver. And the belly and the thighs were made of bronze, an entire Olympic dais right there. Its legs, though, were made of iron, strong, flinty iron. But it stood, this entire weighty statue, upon feet that were a strange mixture of terracotta, clay and iron. That was the first part of his dream. But then there's a second dream, a second part of the dream. And Daniel says, then you looked and you saw a rock. There was a rock, and this rock was cut not by human hands. There's not a human creation, this rock. And this rock, it struck the statue just at its weak point, on its iron and clay feet. And the statue toppled over, crashed down, and became smashed into a thousand tiny pieces and became like the chaff on the threshing floor and the wind came and swept the pieces away so there was nothing left it just was dust in the end but the rock which crashed away the statue became like a mountain that filled the whole earth and lasted forever well what could this dramatic and terrible picture mean now that he has told the king the dream, you can imagine having been told his dream, Nebuchadnezzar's jaw must have been on the floor at that point. I assume he didn't think anyone could have told him the dream, yet alone this young Jewish man. And yet here he has been told the very contents of his own head by Daniel. And now Daniel tells him the interpretation. The interpretation is really quite straightforward. The four sections of the statue represent four kingdoms or empires. Firstly, Nebuchadnezzar's empire is the head of gold, as we see in verse 38. The way Daniel addresses Nebuchadnezzar is very flattering here. He says, The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky. This reminds us of the way Adam, the first human being, was described in the Garden of Eden. God gives all human beings exactly this kind of rule and authority from the beginning. This is the head of gold. But beneath that is the chest and arms of silver. Because after Nebuchadnezzar comes a less glorious kingdom. And then after that, a less glorious kingdom still, the thighs and uh, the trunk of um, bronze. 
Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, the kingdom of the iron legs, which stands upon the feet of iron and clay. This iron kingdom, brutally crushing like iron, a kind of violent kingdom it is, but only partly strong. It has a brittleness to it. It will be great, but will have an eternal weakness to it. Now, what are these four kingdoms? Well, apart from Nebuchadnezzar's, Daniel does not name them. And there's been centuries of speculation and uh, lakes of ink spilt about which kingdoms we're supposed to see in this statue. Was it Babylon, Media, Persia and Greece? Or is it Babylon, Persia, Greece and Rome? And we can have a wonderful argument about that at morning tea. But this, and it might divide the church, but this squabble about the Colossus is a, col- is a colossal missing of the point. What we get here is far more relevant to us, anyhow. The dream is not a timetable of history, but a message about his- how history works. It's a description of all human powers in whatever era, including ours. And here's the bottom line. It is God who gives every earthly kingdom its power and its glory. Earthly kingdoms and powers have their strength from God, even as they claim their own authority, even in their overweening pride and arrogance. And that means even a king as great as King Nebuchadnezzar can be cast down. Even he is more fragile than he appears. Like Adam... He may be covered in glory one day and in disgrace the next. He may lose everything. He, may, he is made of the dust and to dust he shall return. The world's power and authority always has an and next. By God's grace, it is true that some things get better over time. I think I'd much rather live in our own time than in uh, times gone before, even 150 years ago. But what we don't see in this vision is a story of the upward progress of human civilization until we finally reach some great human utopia, nirvana, here on the earth. We go instead from one transient kingdom to the other. Human civilization... Wherever and whenever we find it it is often brutal, always fragile and ever divided. It's always a site of struggle. Even before it is finally overthrown, it is fatally weakened. It stands on feet of clay. But that's not all this dream reveals to us, is it? Because there is also the rock. There is another kingdom, the kingdom of the rock. The final word in human history is not yet another human kingdom, but the kingdom of God, which is not made by human hands and which comes like a rock to ultimately expose and destroy the arrogance of human kingdoms. The rock is not just simply destructive. It does not simply smash. It becomes itself a mountain that will fill the whole earth. Finally, an immovable kingdom and a full stop to history itself. Who is the rock? Jesus Christ is the rock. He came proclaiming the kingdom of God, that it was at hand. 
And in Luke chapter 20, he actually directly identifies himself with the rock in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He is the Messiah of Israel, the king, the son of David, who crushes the kingdoms of this world and who sits on an everlasting throne. But he's a strange way of doing it. This perhaps shouldn't surprise us because his kingdom is not of this world. It's a kingdom that you remember it's like the mustard seed, apparently small and easily missed, overlooked, and yet destined to become the mightiest of, tr of trees, the trees in which all the birds of the air uh, nest. It's a kingdom that grows through his suffering and death and through the suffering of his followers. But it is growing into an unstoppable force that will fill the whole earth. This rock, we might say, is definitely on a roll. Now, Barack Obama was uh, fond of echoing Dr. Martin Luther King's claim that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Wonderful uh, thing that uh, Martin Luther King said in a sermon back in the 1960s. Barack Obama kept saying in his time in office, and Obama was reflecting the noble secular hope that the values of liberal democracy will eventually triumph over totalitarianism and selfishness. And well may we pray that they do. Given the events of the last decade, however, his claim rings somewhat hollow. But Dr King, for his part, knew that what he was saying was true because he knew that the arc of the moral universe bends towards Jesus. It was right then, as it is now, to stand for racial justice and equality, not because one day we will definitely evolve into that kind of society, not because history is teaching us that that's the future, but because it belongs to the kingdom of God. This is exactly what Jesus himself will one day bring. And so now is the time for us to get with the program of the kingdom of God. The secret meaning of history, with all its ups and downs and with its unfathomable complexity, has been revealed to us as it was to Nebuchadnezzar. And it's this. We know the secret of history. It's this. You remember? Human power stands on feet of clay, but the kingdom of God is eternal. That's the secret. Now, this is good news for us when life is a struggle when we don't account for much, when actually our world is closed in, when our personal life is difficult, when we suffer under the yoke of the kingdoms of this world, or when the tide of human affairs seems to be headed against us. Nebuchadnezzar's dream gives Daniel, remember Daniel, essentially a slave in exile, far from home, a citizen of a ruined city, a destroyed city, a member of a beaten people. It gives him the wisdom to see the long view. It gives him binocular eyes as it gives that to us. This is what we have in Jesus. We live, you and I, in the city of Sydney. The beautiful, glorious, golden city of Sydney. As citizens of a far more beautiful and far more permanent city. What we think is eternal will one day be cast out and Jesus the rock will be established. And that should give us the quiet and humble courage of a Daniel who points the fearsome Nebuchadnezzar 
to the God who is king of all. And if I'm honest, I think we contemporary Christians have somewhat lost our confidence in the face of the Nebuchadnezzars of our day. But the dream is also a warning to us all. You are standing on feet of clay. When you have the accolades and the honors of the world, when you have power and respect, when you have the material security of the world, these things that have been given to you from the hand of God, when you have these things, know that they are only for now. Your Instagram followers, your CV, your achievements, your property, they may be good in their time, but they cannot and will not last. They will evaporate. There will be a time when our successes and achievements turn to dust and we will, when we will stand before our Creator to give an account. Then what will matter is not whether we are gold, silver, bronze or iron, but whether we stand upon the rock. There is an next for you. Surprisingly, it's Nebuchadnezzar who got it right at the end of Daniel chapter 2. He worships God. When he heard the dream, he, yes, the mighty Nebuchadnezzar, he of all people, can you imagine it, bows down before Daniel, this Jewish youth, and says, surely your God is the God of gods and the King of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you are able to reveal this mystery. And we don't know if it was a lasting conversion, but at this point, Nebuchadnezzar's response shows that he finally knows where history, including his own history, is headed, where he has got his own power from. And that's what we are called to do. The triumph of Christ the Rock is the one certainty of history. So let us bow down and worship the Lord of Kings, the revealer of mysteries, the King, the God who makes kings rise and fall. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.